Tzatzal to on Roshach Tzatzal. And now, I think, uh, again, when you have people who live to be in their hundreds, so uh, you have to do justice to them. Um, so now, today, we're going to be speaking about Hagein HaTzadak Rechaim Pincha Scheinberg. I didn't do enough research, but Eschatos uh, Maskir. I'm not sure. It seems like this was his name. Chaim Pinchas was his name. Because I have a, a Haskoma here. So back in the 50s, where I think, as you can see here, it wasn't like an added name. Sometimes Rav Scheinberg is known as Rav Pinchas Scheinberg. You can see here on this Haskoma. Chaim Pinchas Scheinberg. So, um, and I believe there's really something important, especially for our audience to hear. Um, unlike the others, he's really, as I, and I think, the first American Godel in a way. Um, there, of course, were Godelim in America, Moshe Feinstein, Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky, Rav Ruderman, Rav Hutner, Zohar Mivrocha. But Rav Scheinberg was truly an American person. Um, he absorbed, he came here at a very young age and absorbed a lot of what American life is. And really, in, even in his life in Eretz Yisrael, um, was a magnet uh, for Americans who had made Aliyah. Uh, and even his yeshiva, although you know, it became very popular uh, in the late 60s and 70s, you know, the Baal yeshivas of Orsameya uh, and and others, um, the idea of a yeshiva for Americans, the idea of a yeshiva for Americans with all their, I wouldn't call it idiosyncrasies, but Americans who weren't necessarily in line with the Israeli sensibilities. Uh, American guys, even if they were strong in learning, still there was a cultural gap. And Torah or in uh, Kiryat Matzersdorf was a, a place that they could come. And it had a particularly American feel. Eventually, uh, through the strength of what they were, their product, they ended up having Israeli programs. But it was, it was in a way, one of the really first truly American yeshivas. When I learned in Mir, we had plenty of Americans there, but part of, part of going to Mir was immersing yourself in uh, your Shalmi culture and uh, your Israeli culture. I think Torah Or, and I think it's a, it's, it's a credit, of course, to Rav Scheinberg and, his, and the people he hired, his children and his in-law, his son-in-law, uh, Rav Tuski and the others, that the yeshiva was really a place that Americans could grow and thrive and feel comfortable. It's not, as you know, Israelis, it's a tough situation, it's a tough uh, environment sometimes. And um, I think now that we look back at it, when I was a Bachar learning in Mir, there was a sense, oh, you, Torah Or, you don't need Torah Or, you can go to another type of yeshiva, you go to an Israeli yeshiva. Um, I, I think what he accomplished in Torah Or, what he accomplished in Eretz Yisrael, and generally the, the whole arc of his life is, I think, very uh, something that bequeaths something very, very important to us. So, before, I have to at least uh, say that we've dedicated this week's year, talked a little bit of Scheinberg already, but dedicated this week's year for someone who we want to grow in the derech of Scheinberg uh, with that type of strength, and that is uh, my grandnephew, Shalom Koretsky. Uh, that means my niece's, my niece's son, so my, my brother's daughter's son. 
my grandnephew, Shalom Karetsky, who was bar mitzvah two weeks ago in Silver Spring. And Shalom, here's that Pusik for you. Uh, a Pusik in Yeshaya. Those are the people, of course, who are who try to uh, run after Benonim Lachavero, which, of course, is one of Shaul, one of the Shaul and the Bar Mitzvah boys meet us, but also, of course, the meet that we all want. Uh, and, and you're going to see from Rosh definitely a Reid of Tzedek. And Mavakshi Hashem, which is not just the Tzedek, that there should be good interpersonal reaction, but, of course, What's the derech to, to become this fusion of So the Novi Yeshaya tells us So this is actually uh, an idea of looking at your shorish, looking where we come from, looking at the, the rock that we were hewed from, at where we were chiseled out from. Chazal say, of course, that this is a remez to the ovos and the mohos. Again, the physical graphic imagery notwithstanding, you have the idea of the tzur, the ovos, the bor, nukartem, uh, the imohos, um, and for any person, uh, we can't make it on our own. Uh, we look at the, our, our, the, our ancestors, mothers and fathers, our actual parents, and going back to Avram and Sarah, that is really understanding their lives and fusing their lives and really learning about Gedola, Michael Scheinberg, and others allow us to see where we come from, what our Sherish was from. And I think that's something that Rav Scheinberg definitely lived by. And uh, it's my bracha for Sholem. Shagila Mailas Midoisi Tzadikeinu. I should have put a yud there. Um, that he should reach the great Midos of our Tzadikim the ethical standards of our tzaddikim, and be able to achieve and to reach the real depth of the wisdom of our Torah. Something which, I, again, uh, the, our, our star of Scheinberg uh, really excelled at. His, his, his push and his drive was phenomenal. We're going to share a couple of, 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 of important ideas from the depth of Scheinberg's wisdom. I think I have to start with the first question, the elephant in the room, which is underneath the tzitzis. Um, people who know Rav Scheinberg, and there's a number of people here in this room, I think. Let's have a show of hands. I'll put on my glasses here. Let's have a show of hands and see how many people were Zoha to see Rav Scheinberg. Okay, two, I know three. Okay. You saw Rav Scheinberg, of course, right? Yeah, many times. He spoke in this building. Yeah, he was the, yeah. Uh, maybe that's what's keeping the building all <laughs> building in place. You talked about the Yankees when he was here. Yeah, yeah, we talked about that before you got in. Uh, uh, American boy. Yeah, so that's why I said he's he um, you know he tried to uproot that feeling that regish, but he was definitely the American. That's, if, if you you'll hear the tape, you'll hear part of what I was saying before about about how that American aspect translated in his students and in the yeshiva as well. But everybody wants to know about the tzitzis. What's going on with the tzitzis, right? Um, now, the truth is, <laughs> he was not... Uh, the amount of tzitzis was incredible. I He looked, at the end of his life, of course, as he was in... Um, in, in you know, he wasn't able to walk uh, that well the last couple of years, if at all. So he looked extremely large... Uh, sitting in his chair, puffed up, 
um, doctors who examined him <laughs> were surprised because when he had to take off all the layers and layers and layers of clothing, they realized he was a thin, you know, a smaller person. And yet he had this, uh, you know, like people were shocked about the, the, the sheer number. The question is, did, did other Godolim do this? Why, why, why did he, he stood out in a way that I, I think really takes luster away from what made him great? Everybody wants, what's with that tzitzis? Like, what, 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 what's going on? Why did he have to wear so many tzitzis? I just want to add one little layer to that. No pun intended. But uh, that in the yeshiva, when he was in the base medrash, um, he wore many, many, set, uh, up to hundreds of pairs of tzitzis, a uh, hundred and something different pairs of tzitzis, most of them wool, which were very thick. Um, and then there was a whole army of, 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 of attendees, not an army really, but there was a, there was a system of, of cleaning the tzitzis, of providing others, there was a special younger man, a special boch, a special kolo fellow who checked the tzitzis. Uh, Scheinberg was very makbid. And again, that whenever he put any of the tzitzis on, he made a tenai that um, if the tzitzis are puzzle, then I'm mafkir the tzitzis. I, I don't own the beget, uh, which many of us should do because the halach, of course, is you have to be bodic, uh, your tzitzis. Um, it's very hard to be bodic a couple hundred pairs. So Rav Scheinberg had some embodic them, but on the chance that some of them might have been puzzle, or become puzzle, he would have a tenai in his mind that it's not really owned by him. You're high to wear tzitzis that on a beggar that you own. If there's a four-cornered beggar that you don't own, and you're wearing it without tzitzis, then you have not been over the assay, you haven't violated the assay of not putting tzitzis on that beggar. So he made a tenai every time he got dressed, in his mind, if the tzitzis were possible, he shouldn't be the owner of the begotten. There was not only that, I, my knowledge of Rav Scheinberg, again, going on a little bit of here, but not really, I discovered Rav Scheinberg when I was in high school in his svara, because um, as you know, if you've uh, been raised in the yeshiva world, before you even know what a tesis is, you know what a tesis is, right? Before you even know how to read a tesis and a rashi, your rabbeim are telling you about the machlokas, the tesis and the nesivas, the you know um, Rav Yaakov Loberbaum and Rav Aryeh Heller, the two uh, these premier writers on Shulchan Aruch that sort of read before there was a Rav Chaim Brisker revolution and before even Rav Kiva Eger, uh, there was already the tesis and the nesivas already had, had started. We'll talk about that in another shir. So there was. The, my Rebbeim were always quoting this Sefer on Shulchan Aruch and using it to explain Gemaras that we had been learning. And I discovered when I was um, on the shelf in the Yeshiva library a Sefer on the Ktsay And not just one volume, it was four or five volumes on this Sefer. It was a Sefer on the Ktsos. In other words, the Ktsos itself is a commentary on the Shulchan Aruch, and this is a super commentary, not on the Shulchan Aruch, but on the Ketzos itself, 
written by, I didn't know who the person was, but I, I used to use the Sefer a lot when I was in high school, the Tabas HaChoshen. There was a lot of stuff there, a lot of information, and, and, and doing research on this book, on this shir, has allowed me to rediscover the Tabas HaChoshen from 40-something years later, 45 years later. So I have a little bit of a different perspective of what I had when I was a kid. But then I got to know who Rav Scheinberg was when I was leading a youth group in uh, North Miami Beach in 1977 or 78, and I stayed by um, a chemist's house, a person who was involved in the drug industry. Um, I know it sounds a little bit fishy, Miami. <laughs> the drug industry, it was not Colombian. It was that, it wasn't, it wasn't, what was this? Right, right, it wasn't those, it wasn't those, uh, it wasn't Don Johnson was not involved on that at all. So, so anyway, but this was someone who was a, a, an American uh, New York transplant, like many, and he told me that one of the things, Rav Scheinberg, he, they said, stayed at their house, and he, why? Because he developed a salve from his company that Rav Scheinberg would wear on his back in order to ease the terrible burns on his skin that the tzitzis had generated. So um, I think, I, I, again, I'm, I'm, I'm being, I, I don't think I'm telling tales out of turn. I think his name was Galitzer. Um, again, it's going a long time back. Uh, uh, but I think, if you look them up, I think the Galitzer family is where I stayed. And Mr. Galitzer was involved in creating the, the best cream that Rav Scheinberg was able to use to keep himself in some sort of, in order to resist that pain. So it was incredible just to hear that, that he, and, and that was the first time I knew that he was involved, you know, that he had worn all these tzitzes. And of course the question always came up, okay, why? Um, and what I heard when I was growing up was that Rav Scheinberg had one time um, been ill, or someone was ill in his family, and he was he made a neder that he was going to be fulfill all the shitos of in hilchos tzitzis. Um, in other words, there's different halachos about what the size tzitzis should be and what the material tzitzis should be and exactly how it should be they should be done. And Scheinberg's hundreds of pairs had to do with um, the <laughs> they had to do with. Uh, Bing say all the shitas. He wanted Makayim all the that showed his tremendous hedur and halacha. Did he work Okay. So now that's what I heard. I, 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 but when I learned till Chasitzis later, it was hard for me to understand. Are there hundreds of sheet I mean there are different there are debates. But but it didn't seem to be that amount, 50, 60, 70 different pair, didn't seem, again, either I was missing something. <coughs> so I came across this article that um, from the outfit that that helps support me, which is called Deer Shoe, of course, which I give shirim for every single night, Sunday night through Thursday night. Um, so Deer Shoe ran an article um, from Yaakov Lustigman, who is a, is a writer for Deershu, about uh, some investigation he did into Rav, Rav uh, Scheinberg's tzitzis. So again, I don't think, okay, so I, I want to like, get the elephant out of the room, but I think there's something here that you should hear. Okay. Um, 
take a look here on the board. Um, they asked one of uh, of Scheinberg's Talmidim, Rabbi Tzvi Sherwin, why did he wear so many tzitzis? And how many? Um, okay. So Rav Sherwin said, no one really knows the true reason. Who lo gila? Rav Scheinberg never revealed it. Now, people asked him. However, he would always, and, 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 and again, I... <laughs> I know uh, uh, a, 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 a Rav that I'm very, very close to, uh, who's probably been Masada more Gitan in America uh, than any Rav around, was asked when he spoke publicly recently, so how many Gitan have you been in Masada? Because he has an incredible amount of stories because he's gone all over the country and, um, and has some of the most amazing stories. And he's, uh, he's a man in his 90s, and I'm just going to leave it at that. So... Um, when someone asked him, he said, it's none of your blank business. Again, this is my thing. What you want to know? Like, what is this thing you want to know how many tzitzes? I, I, I get the same question a lot when people come up and Mir Tashem will we'll all meet in my house one day. And people come up to my farm room and they say, how many farm do you have? Like, how many farm do you have? Everybody wants to know that, right? Like people like, like, like a child, how many tzitzes do you wear? How many are you wearing? Without really understanding the person. And Rosheinberg, of course, did not respond in a cruel way, he would always talk about something else without answering the question. He didn't want to say, listen, this is your curiosity, I'm not going to tell you. Um, the uh, You could take a look here that Rav Sherwin says that um, when he was recovering from an operation, <laughs> the doctors told him that he has to stop wearing all those tzitzes. Um, but he said, okay, Rav Scheinberg understood you had to listen to what doctors are telling you. However, as he was recuperating, it said that the Rosh Hashiva went to many of the younger light in the yeshiva, and he asked them to learn in Maishos, and I'm going to pay you for that. I want you to learn more than you usually do, and, and, and I'm going to pay you to make sure that it's being done on my behalf. Because right now... Um, he doesn't have the schuyos that he felt he was having with wearing the tzitzis. Um, so, Sherlin's theory is uh, that the tzitzis were a way for him to mar b'schuyot. Again, I guess halachically we can ask the question, are you, are you makayim more mitzvos with the amount of tzitzis if they're exactly the same? Wearing many, many more pair, it is seemingly an assay Kiyumis. Uh, in other words, it's another pair of clothing, right? So, in a way, there's another assay and another assay and another assay. You separate bracha. Um, that's if you know you're wearing a number of pair. I don't think you make a separate bracha because, but still, it's a good question, Ellie. There's definitely some sort of greater schus. However, it's definitely was an unknown uh, idea. Uh, Sherwin says that basically, if you knew the Rosh Hashiva, he says that his whole life. One of the, the the mantras of his life was to be makaya mitzvahs um, and to try to do it as much as possible. Um, and if you take a look, this is something which many people know, and there's a YouTube video of it as well. As late as the last year of his life, when he was already in his he was already 101 or so, that he would always act as a shliach tibur. 
he always would daven for the Yomah. Now, most of the time, we look at people who, you know, Vusvil in the Breitel, people that, uh, you know, Machap the Breitel, that it's like, I, I want to daven for the Yomah. Okay. He felt that he, as, as much as possible in the yeshiva, he would leave the Tfilis. Um, Shabbosim, Yom Tovim, that was one of, and again, we talk about, uh, before most of the people came in here, I talked about the atmosphere in Torah Or that was a little bit different than it was in other yeshivas. Well, one of them was that the Rosh Yeshiva would always be davening as much as possible for the Yomud. He mentions, Sherwin says that he had a yard site, and he asked the Rosh Yeshiva to be mochel, that he should be able to daven mincha, and the Rosh Yeshiva said, okay, yard site, you can daven. But normally, the Rosh Yeshiva was the Rosh Yeshiva's prerogative to daven, and he would daven for the Yomud. Um... And this, of course, doesn't jive with the, the type of wonderful, kind person that he was. Yet, there were certain things that were primary. And what was primary was he felt he needed the Sliot to be able to <coughs> lead the Tzibor. There was another reason, of course, uh, which Sherwin points out, which has to do with what we talked about before, was that Torah Or was staffed by, well, not staffed, was populated by American boys, kids, and as even I had to learn a lot myself when I was a teenager how to daven properly. As much as you know, I, I grew up uh, davening in a shul and going to yeshiva. Many of the American boys did not know exactly how to pronounce the words. They they would rush through the words, and even if they didn't rush through the words, they would pronounce them different. They would pronounce them incorrectly. For example, we know in davening you're supposed to be madgish. The last syllable, right? You're not supposed to say Allah Hasidim, Allah Tzadikim, Allah Hasidim, Allah Hasidim, right? You're supposed to put the emphasis on the last syllable. Um, and, and many other times where it's a Shvano and other things like that, um, right? And, and, and again, <laughs> right? So again, if you, there are people who say that, that a Kaddish Baruch Hu is neman to the, the dead animals, right? Instead of <laughs> right? 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 Or, right? Oyev instead of Ohev becomes Oyev Amoyev, right? So these are just examples. What? That's not good either. That's not good, but many people, again, if you if you listen, you can see that many people don't pronounce properly. So part of what Rev. Scheinberg was trying to do was to provide the best possible Baltfila. In other words, not to... And he would try to show the American boys... To model To model them how you said... It's interesting also, Rav Scheinberg, when he would give shir, many times would uh, would take an aside to explain how a word is pronounced. And uh, it would go out of his way to explain the shorish of a word, how you should say it. Um, things that many times, and again, Israelis will constantly correct you if you actually speak with them. A lot of times it's because of their modern Hebrew havarah, but like you'll say, I want to be marbus chusim, chusim, schuyot, right? That's what they'll tell you. So many times, zocher v'nekevo, like many of the, 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 the tendencies that Americans have, and we have a lot of Americans in this room, so we know what we're talking about. Rav Scheinberg was worried about that. He wanted it to be on the best possible way. But there was also the idea was that he wanted to be Rodef Achar Mitzvos. 
And you can take a look. There's a video, which I didn't look at, but I think it's on there where he's leading the tefillahs even when he's the last year of his life. Um, so again, you have to figure out why he felt that he that he could be mavater on standing. I don't know. Um, and as you can see, this was one of the things. Um, if you take a look here, uh, Sherwin says that it was about 120 pair of tzitzis. And the other thing which I forgot to say, I forgot to mention before, was the talitot. Now, when did he wear the talesim? He wore the talesim when he was <coughs> acting as a public figure. In it, it's, it's very interesting if you look at the Wikipedia article that I uh, appended to today's uh, sources. Kiryat Matersdorf was, um, it, again, it was from the Matersdorfer Rav, from Rav Shmuel Ehrenfeld. They, they wanted to build that, and, and they gave a sweetheart deal to uh, the yeshiva in order to be able to buy land and have a yeshiva there. That's where it is in Kiryat Matersdorf. Eventually, an interesting thing occurred. He was, of course, the Rosh Hashiva, and in America he wasn't, again, in America he wasn't known as a posek, but in Eretz Yisrael, people in Matersdorf, Americans originally from the yeshiva, and then Israelis, and everyone started coming to him to Paskin Shilas. And he had a unique derech and psak, different than Rebbe Yashiv and others who we'll talk about. But it was then when he realized he was very much in the public he would wear talesim, and not just one. He would wear, right? He wear a whole number of talesim on, onto the tzitzis. So when he was in his public uh, mode, either speaking publicly, which was like, or uh, paskening, and there is a din when you're paskening, especially he did dayonis as well. People would come, he was a yochid mumcha, and a, a, a tremendous bucky. Again, anybody who looks at any of his farm, even what he wrote, he wrote the Tabas HaKhoshim, which we'll look at in a second, in his 40s. His Bikiyas was incredible. So he could, he was a Dayan and a Posek. And part, of course, the Halacha is that you needed, a Dayan needs Atifa. A Dayan is supposed to wear some sort. Now, it either means Atifa on his head that you don't see his face. So the Dayan doesn't, you know, you don't try to appeal to his to his face, but there's another halacha, suppose Kamusatif means he should be wearing a talis. So he wore a talis in that mode in many talisim. Um, also, I thought it was interesting that he had many frakim. You know what a frak is, of course, a Prince Albert coat or a yibitza, whatever, right? He had many, he had, based on the amount of tzitzes he could wear, he had different frakims, right? Because when, when he felt good, he could take out the supersized frak, right? But when he was under medical uh, commands to, to wear less tzitzes, he would have actually a, a different type. But there were, there were different environments also. He had patent, the, the tzitzes were all connected, they were like packs. And so he would layer the different packs based on, like, if he were traveling on a plane, he wouldn't wear as many as, as when he was... That's true. You know, right. not traveling. Right. Um, his, and when he traveled, his suitcases were, were mostly tzitzes. <laughs> yes. Uh, barely, barely any clothes and mostly tzitzes. Well, as you can see here, we, I know we, we, we could probably relate to this, especially yesterday. It's, I don't know how hot it's going to get today. <laughs> but you can take a look at your Shalayim. It was 40... What's 40? Is 40 about 100? Is 40 more than 100? Okay. 98.6 is 37. Yeah, so he says, 
He says, I don't believe, he says, I'm not sure if there were air conditioners in the yeshiva, but everybody in the yeshiva was, was sweltering in Torah or they sat in the base medrash. Um, the Rosh Hashiva sat there with more than 100 tzitzis on in the base medrash without air conditioning and 100 degree heat. Um, so they asked him, um, how can he stand it? The, the he was very approachable, and I think everybody here knows. I spoke with him myself of a number of times. He was he made himself extremely approachable. One of the things I talked about that he was in in in, in Matersdorf. First of all, the Ameri- like I said, the Americans needed help. Okay, I, I, I've said it many many times. They needed help. They needed a, a figure like Rav Scheinberg. Rav Scheinberg, especially, and again, I'll, I'll be more clear than I was before. The top guys wanted to try to make it in Mir, even Chevron or Ponovich. The guys who weren't from the top tier were the ones who went to Torah Or. That doesn't mean that eventually they didn't become great, great Tamina Chachamim, but they weren't ready yet for the big yeshivas. My brother Shaya, he's a gazun sign, um, when he came to, uh, he had learned in Tells for, um, from, from Tells High School, and then he learned in the Tells uh, Besmedrish in Chicago, and then in 1969 or 70, he came to Eretz Yisrael, and he met with uh, Goyen Rav Chaim Shmelevitz Atzal, and he, Rav Chaim, this mirror was not as big as it is today, and he said to Rav Chaim, Ich will wissen, wie I want to know how to learn. So Rav Chaim said to him, Du, ne, du menep nicht eine, was will wissen, wie zu lernen. Menep zeh, was ken schoen lernen. Right? We don't just take people who want to know how to learn. We take people who know how to learn already. And my brother, of course, was very honest. He had spent all those years in tells and hearing great shurim from people like Rav Srotskin, Rav Gifter, and others. But he really felt he wanted to know how to learn still. That was an attitude that the Eretz Yisrael Dik Yeshivas had. Mir, Chevron, Ponovich, don't, don't come over here. Right? When I, yeah. So there, there needed to be that place. And Rav Scheinberg was like a father to, to, to so many. Up until the point, not only did the Bokram eat by Rav Scheinberg's house constantly, and of course his wife was a big tzaddik, because she's of course the daughter of Rabbi Herman. Uh, everybody knows that. His, his daughter wrote, the, the, I think his other daughter, Racham Hashem, wrote the other daughter, right? That's Rav Scheinberg's sister-in-law, uh, wrote, of course, the great famous book, it's all for the boss, which, of course, Rav Herman, his influence on Scheinberg was incredible. But the point is, is that they had people in the house constantly, and eventually everybody started coming to Rav Scheinberg's house to get a Shabbos bracha. And in Matersdorf, you had hundreds of hundreds of people coming to the Rosh Hashiva's house, and he waited. Uh, obviously, it took hours and hours because he gave Shabbos brachas to everyone individually. He didn't just say, you know, buha to everyone, right? Bracha v'atzlocha. Eventually, when it became a, when it became very <coughs> difficult, and the doctors, but he would spend hours. Not having his meal in order to give Shabbos brachas to everybody that came to his house, which is very interesting because in, in later years, um, and, and not even so close to, to you know to the end, he, he had a tiny keyboard. He didn't talk. Oh, so we're going to talk about. So I'm going to talk about that as well. That's coming up. It's coming up. Yanki, you could have given this year today, I think. But <coughs> and I'm happy. I'm happy. By the, I'm happy. Believe me. Um, 
Anyway, so Sherwin's point is is that his family actually fought with him. If you take a look, it says his Rebetzin, it was at Tzadikas, no question about it. Uh, Basha, Bessie. <laughs> Bessie Shine, you know, the thing of Bessie Scheinberg, that's what they called her. His nickname, by the way, supposedly was growing up, was Lefty, because he was such a, he was so adept at, at sports. Um, but Bessie, Rebetzin, and Bessie would try to get him to take the tzitzis off, and you know, it, and he would go back and take them. It was sort of like, I'm, it's sort of like I, you're taking them off. I'm bringing them back. It was like, okay, right? um, as it says, he was a big auction, a big auction having the Ahmed, big auction there. Um, the um, okay, so basically, um, as he says, Sherlin, that it wasn't about the Sheetas and the Shulchan Aruch. It was all up the Mishnah Baruch. <coughs> One thing about. Um, uh, that I've discovered, and we're going to talk about more, and maybe next week, but this week as well, is that despite his like incredible bikiyas, uh and, and the sources that he quotes, they are limited within the Litvisha world. He was a, a, a Litvisha godel, uh, an American Litvisha godel. There's hardly any chesidisha poskim that he that he quotes in his safe. I saw a number, a couple of Avni Nazers. But mo- again, I didn't do a thorough search. But from what I've seen, he he had he, he drew the, the it was a, it was a, it was a wide expanse of sfarim that he drew from. But he wasn't trying to be machmer according to some sfardish shita. He said he, he he it was a big hana as you can see up here on the board when somebody would bring him uh, the temani um, uh, like. Taimanim have a different sheet of how to how to tie the knots, how to put the order together, and but it wasn't like oh now I can make that sheet. He enjoyed it, but most of the tzitzis were all pretty much the same, and as you can see here, they were made out of wool. The chazanish, of course, it's famous, was machmir to wear cotton because he wanted to prove a point, because there are shittas, the Sephardish shittas that hold, it has to, the tzitzis need to be made of wool. The Chazanish, as an Ashkenazi posik, wanted people to see that he was wearing cotton tzitzis. Part of it, of course, might have been... Part, what? It's part of it might have been the heat of B'nai Brak, but... but, but, but uh, no cotton. Cotton was not, uh, and definitely not uh, polyester uh, or anything yeah, like that. Yeah, because we're cotton on Shabbos, I think. Because of the suffix. So that was a different thing, because there there was a question of, of the nitziv, the chumr of the nitziv, of um, if you don't have tchelis in your tzitzis, it's possible that the tzitzis are considered caring on Shabbos, because the whole reason why, not the begot itself, but, um, okay. But anyway, um, or if one is postal, it's carrying. Right. right. Does now, the brisket sheet not wearing scissors. What? Is some kind of brisket sheet not wearing scissors. Right. So the, the right. right. That's the same. The same sheet. Um, take a look here. I, I thought this was. Um, I always think about this on. Uh, I think about this uh, on Shuas. Yeah, on Shuas, of course, uh, the Bochum learn all night, and many uh, yeshivas have a minute to go to the Kotel, the Kotel for, for, for Sikh and Minyan. So he says that this wasn't, again, he was already an older, older man, and he was quicker, he was, he was faster than all of them. 
He would actually walk quicker with all his tzitzes on. I'm not sure if he had the talesim on as well, but they saw that he was walking faster than all the bacham. He was leading the charge, Rav Scheinberg. Uh, and obviously he had the simch of having learned all night. Um, and that was the incredible energy that he had. It was, it was a well-known fact that you could see Rav Scheinberg running in the, when he could, in the streets of Matersdorf. He would, when, from his apartment where he could see the doors of the yeshiva, he would run, literally run like, I don't know, like Usain Bolt, but he would run like a runner. It wasn't just, I'm walking quickly. I've seen, I saw many Rosh Hashivas when I was growing up in Eretz Rabbanim, that when they would get close to the doors, they would go in quickly. Rosh Scheinberg, again, it's, it, it, we think about it, we say, wow, who's like that, right? He actually felt, he was this model, he was going, this older man, wearing all these sits, running in the street, because you run to get to the base Madrash. What? Okay, I'm not sure, but again, that's another that's a question. But he would run to show his avas and that was something that was important to him. Even you know when they when, when he couldn't walk and he was driven to the uh, to the yeshiva, the driver uh, was aware that don't park the car. We're going to get to the yeshiva as soon as we're at the door. Stop, and he would run out of the car in order to get into the yeshiva. The same thing would be after his the shear room in the original Torah or building was up on the third floor where Scheinberg would give shear, and he would be preparing. He had a little office where he'd prepare his shiurim. People would get to get out of his way because he would shoot out of the shear like a like like a lion. In fact, one of Scheinberg's beautiful, um, I thought it was interesting. He uh, he was mafarish the. The Mishnah, well not the Mishnah, the beginning of Tur Shulchan Aruch, where it says Yisgaber Ka'ari Alavoyes Haber. You've heard this part already from Scheinberg. So Rav Scheinberg wondered, knowing animals, and I guess he probably saw them in the in the Bronx or Central Park Zoo, and knew them maybe from the lions. He says normally we say get again uh, strengthen yourself like a lion for the service of God. And he asked, if you know about lions, they are lazy. In other words, it's not because lions are like this, this incredible uh, moving animal. That's always... He says, lions sit there in the sun. They almost don't move. They're just waiting and waiting. They're like lion. What? They're lion. Yes, yes. So, so why did Kazal, he says, he says, you would think, okay. He said, it's actually, that's actually the point. The lion does have a teva of being lazy. But when food comes by, when his prey is there, he overcomes that and pushes himself and shoots out like, like, like a shot to get that thing that he wants. He says, that's the idea of, we know that we all would like to sleep some more, right? But Yizgabra Ka'ari, because just like the lion, when he wants to get his, wants to get that item, and wants to get that prey, he becomes this missile. That's the way we have to be. And again, that's the way Rav Scheinberg himself was like this missile, and people had to to get out of his way. So what is Sherwin's point? Sherwin's point is like this. Um, The, when when people would ask him, um, 
Maybe they want to wear more tzitzis. And it happened. Without getting into too much arichas, the Torah or guys, yeah. they figured, they figured, hey, maybe, let's, maybe we're going to wear tzitzis, just like the Rashiva. He's our hero. He wouldn't let them. He got upset at them. He says, yeah, he says, I don't want to hear any terutsim. No, no, no. He would stop them. If he saw somebody walking around with more, he would, he would stop them. Um, but he said one thing. He said, okay, make sure your tzitzis are neat. Make sure that they're not, that, the, that the, all the strings are, uh, are, 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 they don't become all dirty and, 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 and schmutzig. And um, and if he saw people that didn't, he says, "You want to learn from me?" He says, "Make sure you do at least one mitzvah tzitzis properly. Don't try to have them all." Um, Sherlin himself, I think, puts it nicely here. He says, "You want to be like Rav Scheinberg, then be a Balmidos like him. You should eat the way he ate." Now, one of the things we talk about on Shabbos, uh, Rav Scheinberg w- was very makvid um, to. First of all, he was macabre on himself. He didn't wash only for Suda's mitzvah. He did not eat bread and have a Suda unless it was Suda's mitzvah. So it either would be a <coughs> or, or a bris or a, or a, um, a, a siyam sechta. That was a Kabbalah he had for many, many years in his life. Um, and, but when he would eat on Shabbos, he made sure, especially if it was prepared by his family, he made sure to taste something, and of course everything he tasted on Shabbos especially, we will cover Shabbos, and then he come out didn't eat. Um, um, so, Sherwin says, you want to be like Rosheinberg? First, you know what? First, try to work on your midas the way Rosheinberg does. Learn Torah the way Rosheinberg did, which, which was unstoppable. Um, one of the things that um, talked about, uh, it was very famous in the Torah or Yeshiva, that after they make Havdolah, Rav Scheinberg would give, the, would give a shmuz every um, uh, Shalashidus. After Havdolah, they made Havdolah in the yeshiva, and the Bochum would be singing. Rav Scheinberg would rush to his shtender, and he would learn, even when it was the winter hours, he would learn till about 10 o'clock every, let's say, Shabbos before going home. And that was his Seder where nobody bothered him. That was the seder where he would learn chuvasvar, which is where you'll see you'll see his incredible the heck of the chuvasvar that he looked in, and that was the seder, and he learned by himself every mitzvah shabbos after him to be given this strong shmuz, because he felt it was important to show this is what you do, you use your time to learn shabbos mitzvah shabbos. For for many of us, it's like what are we doing this Saturday night, right? What are you going to do? Okay, shabbos is over. Right? Who knows? Right? Yeah, Seder's tomorrow morning. Rav Scheinberg, that was the Seder. Everybody in the yeshiva saw him studying with, with of course, incredible concentration and asmoda. And again, part of that shows you, again, if, if, we look at the tzitzis and we're forgetting the real essence of the person. I don't have an explanation. I will definitely say, look, uh, the, the story that was written of all of us probably has some idiosyncrasies. But the depth of his Avodas Hashem gives him the right. The Chsam Soifer speaks about in the famous tshuva that he wrote to um, the Eor, the, um, the, the Yismach Moshe. The Yismach Moshe, or Moshe Teitelbaum, 
was the head of Hungarian Chassidus. Uh, the Satmarov was a descendant of the Yismach Moshe. Today, we look at Hungarian Chassidus, we know it basically as Satmar, but it really started with the Yismach Moshe. And the um, Chassam Sofer was from Oberlan, which was, you know, it bordered in Hungary. They were sort of like comp- competitors. The Yismach Moshe, two Moshes. One was the great Chassidus Rav, the Heish of Moshe. actually wrote Chuvas. He doesn't compare to Chassam Sofer in terms of the amount of Chuvas, but he did write Chuvas. He was considered not just some sort of Rebbe who was walking around with a shtekin. <laughs> but Chassam Sefer wrote Chassam writes to him with incredible incredible COVID because he knows that he's leading uh, thousands of, 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 of Talmidim so Chassam Sofer wrote, wrote to the Yismach Moshe and he talks about what does Chassidus mean according to the way he's concerned and remember Chassam Sofer was a student of, of Rav Pinchas Horowitz who had studied by the Magad of Mizrich the Magad of Mizrich was number second generation in the Hasidic world. His one of his Talmidim was Rapinchas Horowitz, known as the Bauhaflo, was the Rav in Frankfurt, and the Chassam Sofer studied Adaman, and not on, not on the order, right? So the Chassam Sofer studied under a Chassid. Now it's true, Rapinchas Horowitz was sort of hiding how Hasidic he was in Frankfurt because he had to be the rabbi and he had to influence them. But he knew what Hasidus was of some Sefer. He had heard about it. He was very familiar. But what he objected to was the fact that he had been getting chuvis from in the Hasidic world where a person wasn't allowed to be about Tfila because he wasn't wearing um, because he wasn't wearing satin. There was a kpeda. Okay, we know we talk about a zadin a bekisha. Zadin is silk or satin, right? Satin, zadin. Why? Every a lot of people wore long. So one of the reasons was was because there those clothes that were made from zadin were noki from shot. There was less of a shash of shatnes about them. So it got to a point that in certain chesidish shtiblach, if you weren't wearing the zadin, you weren't allowed to be about tefillah. So someone who had a chiyuv appealed to the Chassam Seifer and wanted the Chassam Seifer to intervene. And the Chassam Seifer stepped into the breach and he said, I understand that if somebody wants to love a certain mitzvah to the ultimate level and be makbed beyond anyone else, that's great because that's what your neshama is leading you. But you can't take that and apply it and mass. Everyone should have a love mitzvah. In other words, force it on others. Find the mitzvah that you love. And that mitzvah, you're, for, for some yourself, reason, for uh, yourself, and, and you, and, and you're, right, and you're machmir to all the different shittas, you want to makayim that. Rav Scheinberg was in that way a chassid like the Chassam Seifer's definition. He didn't feel that he should be emulated in those type of zahirism that he had. He starts people from, from right. That's that, that, that's what I'm saying. So, and, and, and now, what, what what was the mystery? There was something deep in his neshama that, which every tzaddik and every, even if you're not a tzaddik, there's certain mitzvahs all of us can say. Well, uh, and we'll say, well, how come you're not so makpin lashon hara? Right, you're, the way you right you, this thing, like you're so makpin in, in, in kashras, you're so makpin on, on these things. So people will say you're a hypocrite. Well, how come you're not makpin on all these things? 
some ciphers, tshuva is very important and instructive in that way. And I think it was Rav Scheinberg, I don't even think I need that terrorist because I, I don't know that he was calling anything. But all of us, I think, can strive. There's, one, there's a hook that we fall in love with and, and the rest gets schlepped in. We can't be held responsible. Hey, well, how come you're not mocked on A, B, C, D, E, G? Oh, that's just a phony what you're doing, right? That, that's, sometimes, that's sometimes what's considered the, uh, the charge against people. And I think we have to understand when we see someone who's unique in something, that's his shayrish neshama there. And, and, and it's not to us to judge the same way we wouldn't want people judging ourselves about a certain mitzvah that's our standout, that what we stand for. We know we have a lot to work on. We know there's certain mitzvahs that we're very good at, and other things we have to we have to be over. But but there has to be a place, like some sefer says, where Abbas Hashem begins. <coughs> the Abbas Hashem begins in that hook, and hopefully that hook can draw the other person up. I think that's the way I would I, I would explain it. I want to talk about since we've been talking about his uh, his midos toivos. Um, let's talk about Shabbos for a minute. I have a piece that I appended to the uh, email, uh, a piece on Shabbos, and you can see the the emotion and the feeling that, and maybe we'll get to it in a second. Right, what, are you doing a, a second share? On yes, that? yes. Okay. okay, but 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 there's a, 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 a there's a piece on one of his shmuzim that he wrote himself after the shmuz about what he feel what he felt about Shabbos. How he actually acted on Shabbos was pretty incredible. Um, let me just show you this. Um, first of all, again, you know, they davened in his house, I guess because he wasn't able to get to the yeshiva all the time. And everyone remembers, of course, the, the, the Brocha Main Sheva that we say. And they said whenever, of course, he was the Valtfilo. And whenever, when he would say, you know, he would cry. You know, and when when they would say things that you would assume he had definitely achieved, that's where he broke down, thinking that he was not worthy. Um, the um, besides, of course, his learning. Um, what's interesting is that what Yankee brought out, he made a Kabbalah uh, when he was thirty. And one of his daughters was ill, and he was macabre for the rest of his life, um, a tinus dibur on Shabbos, not to speak on Shabbos. Anything that wasn't uh, a mitzvah, he would not speak on Shabbos. Um, it says that um, when people asked him something, and instead of embarrassing them, he would say, like he would answer back, sort of like giving them the clue what was going on. Um, is there a source though? What? Is there a source though? Again, this was something which he felt he needed and he kept to it. There was one time they said where he couldn't find, you can take a look on the board there, he was looking to come into, say, Mazel Tov to one of the Yungalite who had made, was making a kiddish. And the guy that was walking with him, he said to him, <laughs> In other words, he told him, um, he didn't want to say, ask somebody. He would use a Pusik or half of a Pusik, so he should technically not violate his, his, his Tainas Dibur. Um, that um, the, uh, but he would speak 
people would speak in the shir, of course. Um, and this, I thought, was a beautiful part of his his minag. Um, the uh, look at this. Uh, he would get. He would. He always wanted to get home to be with his wife to eat Shabbos, and. One time he saw that uh, his wife, uh, Rebetzin Basia, Basia, saw that he was late and there were people waiting to, to, to discuss something with Rav Scheinberg. And they saw, she looked outside and she saw him on the steps talking with one of her sisters, uh, Rebetzin Stern. And they just seemed to be talking about stuff, which seemed to go against... Um, his custom of not speaking Dibrachol. So Rebetzin Scheinberg said to the Yungalite, he doesn't speak Dibrachol, not even to me. But he said, I'm going to explain it so you shouldn't think that he violated his nether. My sister has been an almona and she's having difficult times. And to speak to someone and converse when they need it is a mitzvah. In other words, it wasn't like, and therefore, lev alman arnen. So even though normally he would never speak tivrechol, but what's he, if, if he would just nod and smile to his sister-in-law, she wouldn't get the comfort that she needed. She wanted to have the back and forth. So that's, that's as big of a mitzvah as giving a shear in the bismedish. And that's why that to him was not a violation. Um, I thought this was great. I wish I could do it. Um, um, it said that uh, he, many times Racham Hashem, who also lost, she ended up living with them, as you know, Rebetz and Shane ended up living in, uh, basically living pretty much in the same area with the Scheinbergs. So they would sit there on Shabbos and he would listen, really listen. Uh, again, I'm going to just, a pet peeve of mine is, if you ever go to these uh, dinners or these places where the gedolim, not gedolim, but rabbonim, they're sitting on the dais and someone is speaking. You should see, the, especially now that the cameras pan on them, look at the way that most of these people are not listening. They're not looking at the person at all. They're basically, you can see how bored they are waiting to give their speech. Um, I have a kabbalah from my Rebbe, Rebbe Dali Schwartz, who was a, is a tremendous, a tremendous, he listened to every fair that ever got up, and I was with him at many dinners of rabbis that didn't deserve that title in any way, shape, or form. But when someone is speaking, you listen to them, you look at them, you know? Right. Rav Scheinberg, of course, his wife and his sister-in-law, he would sit there, he would listen to everything they had to say, smiling, looking at them, making eye contact, talking to them, letting them talk to him. And of course, he was nodding, absorbing. I'm not talking because he has this minute. But, but um, so I think that that gives you a little bit of what, what it was, um, you know, what his Shabbos was. Obviously, um, yeah. I do want to. Um, Again, so I think in a way um, we've talked a little bit about. Um, I think we've gone beyond the tzitzis. I think so. I can't, like I said, I. It's it's it's. I think we're almost ending here, right? So I want to. I want to. I guess I'll end with this. Um, Rav Scheinberg was a Masada Kedushin very often, 
And his minag, what everybody saw was that he cried as he was being Masada Kedushin. That was another thing that the people would see him cry. And they asked him, what is it, why are you crying? Um, you know, you're Masada, you do this so often, acting as the Masada Kedushin for Bokhrim and for people who get married. So he says, well, I'll tell you, think about it. The idea, especially especially after what he had seen in, in Europe and other places, the fact that there could be a new house of Klal Yisrael, that, that there's an extension of this miracle of our existence, what's more emotional than that? Whoever the couple is, that's one thing. But he says it's more than that. What's the bracha that you make under the chuppah that he makes as the Masada Kedusha? Right? Asher Osra Lona Wesarusais. Meaning that that's the Kedushas Yisrael. Kedushas Yisrael is because we have we have an Arusa and a Nesua. What does that mean? He says, Rav Scheinberg explained, the Rambam in the beginning of Ilchas Isha says that before before the Torah was given, it was like Gronk the caveman, right? Basically, what happens is is you find a woman that you want. Adam Pogei Ishib Bishuk. It's from a. Adam Pogei Ishib Bishuk. Google it. Umachnisa letoch beiso. So basically, what? So Adam, basically, what it was is I like this woman. Okay, right? You're going to be my wife. You didn't have to wait, right? What was the Rambam says? What happened? He says, you need hachana, you need to court, you need you have a waiting period. There's got to be ish, erisin, and nesuin. Meaning, that's what kedusha is. Kedusha is, is that you don't just grab what you want. You don't just, oh, you're fine, this is a good woman, I'm going to take you, you're going to be married. Kedushan is a symbol of what kedusha Yisrael is, which is, we... We, we part ourselves, we wait, we allow it to develop. And, yeah, so that's really, in a way, what, what Kedushas Yisrael is, and that's a symbol of, 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 of the type of restraint that you need. That's where our Kedusha is. So in a way, that's something to really be nisragish uh, about. So next week, Mir Tzashem, we'll talk more about, um, you know what? One, learning, I hope. <laughs> Yeah. Right, that's right. We'll talk about many, many examples from his learning, Mirz Hashem, next week. So, Mirz Hashem, we'll try Machabinim. Everybody should have an easy fast. And we'll see Mirz Hashem. Okay. Yes. Yes. Oh, you're learning Mishmeris Chaim? Who is? Oh, that's right. That was like a. So eventually they That was like a way to think about. Right, so that's. And it became now a safe for the people use for uh, for halacha. Even though it was really meant, it was really meant to really just get the guys thinking. Right, right, right. right. When it became the safe. Okay, thank, this is your friend who came in, right? All right, all right. Okay, I hope it was worthwhile. Okay, let's see if it's next. What? I know, I know him very well. He came to to to